What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. In Xanadu, did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree? Not so fast, Mr. Kane. Last summer, when Sight & Sound magazine made its once-a-decade decree of the greatest films of all time, Citizen Kane lost its spot at the top of the list for the first time in half a century. This week on Film Spotting, we'll revisit our August 2012 show when we talked about the Sight & Sound list, and never ones to back down from a challenge, especially in list form, we named our own greatest films of all time. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and some special guests shared their picks as well. That's all ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. We're going to hop into the Film Spotting DeLorean this week to revisit a summer 2012 show, and it's a good one, we think. The subject, the very best films of all time. My co-host Josh Larson and I share our picks, along with Film Spotting regular Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. The inspiration for the show was the once-a-decade publication of Sight & Sound's list of the greatest films of all time. The UK magazine has polled critics and filmmakers every 10 years since 1962. And the big news from the 2012 Sight & Sound critics poll was that Citizen Kane, which had held the top spot since the poll's inception, got knocked off. The new champ, as you may remember hearing at the time, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. In anticipation of our show, we set Kane and Vertigo against each other in one of our patented film-spotting poll death matches. We simply asked listeners, Citizen Kane or Vertigo, if you could only save one, what would it be? And I'll cut the suspense short, it is a year-old poll question after all. Kane won. It hung on to the top spot, among film-spotting listeners anyway, but the results were closer than we thought they'd be, 54% for Kane to Vertigo's 46%. And here on the show, me, Josh, Michael Phillips, we all went with Kane as well, with the Orson Welles masterpiece making all three of our top ten lists, the only film, in fact, that made all three lists. Before we get to the rest of our picks and explain how we went about making those choices, we talked Kane and tried to answer the question as to why, 70 years after its premiere on the big screen, Citizen Kane remains one of the greatest films of all time and maybe the greatest film of all time. If you could have found up that rosebud mint, I bet that would have explained everything. No, I don't think so. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle. A missing piece. This, this film, for so many people, was the film that they fell in love with at a certain age, you know, maybe maybe some teen year of their, you know, form, you know, adolescent formation. And it's the first film I think a lot of people were really spellbound by, but they couldn't really tell you why. It's not really because it's a gripping mystery, although there is a riddle at the heart of it, but there's something about the the theatricality and the cinematic bravura of it. It's just, it's, it's just more of a dazzlement than anybody, uh, you know, I knew at, at age 14 or 15 had seen. It, it's, it's, you take such delight in the way it was made, and it's it's very different from Vertigo, the one the one that's deposed Citizen Kane, in that there's certainly Hitchcock's filmmaking is scarcely less bravura than many of his other films, but that film is fundamentally much simpler and and sadder and and more and more seriously troubling in a way. And mm-hmm. Kane, Kane, you can just kind of dive into as 
as a cinematic wonder, and I'm, I'm a little sad to see it off the number one. Are first you? Person. Much as I love Vertigo, much as I, much as the, the the whole question of which Hitchcock to pick, if you really had to pick one, I mean, talk about it. Talk about a vexation, guys. A vexation. I was vexed. <laughs> That question alone, huh? I was still, I'm still vexed. Actually, <laughs> I think I think Kane persists because it's such a thrilling textbook. I mean, it's elemental cinema, so you can look at it and learn about how the movies were maybe not born, but at least perfected, possibly, or certainly techniques were pioneered and perfected. And yet, at the same time, you can get absolutely lost in the story and the theatricality of it and the performances so that it's fun while when you come to it the first time as a film student or whatever, it's fun. Yet you're learning everything you need to know about the cinema at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you use the word mystery, Michael, because as I was looking over my list after I'd come up with my 10 selections, I was looking through them to see if there was some commonality, if there was a thread running through them at all. And one of the themes I settled on, or one of the concepts I clued in on, was the fact that all of these films on my list, and I'm sure it runs throughout some of your picks as well, really are driven by a mystery. It isn't necessarily a mystery in the sense that you're trying to solve a crime or even trying to solve a puzzle, though some of my picks do fall into that as well. But really, it's filmmakers exploring the when, the how, and most importantly, the why of human behavior, really dealing with some fundamental existential questions. And the central mystery here with Kane is, of course, Rosebud, trying to unlock the significance of that dying gasp and what insights we can take away, if any, about this larger-than-life figure. There's so much going on narratively. It's, of course, matched by what's going on technically. But what's driving it all is that central quest, that mystery that the newsreel reporter is trying to get to the bottom of. I do wonder, Arson Wells was the first to kind of dismiss his own, um, the screenplay with Herman Mankiewicz, uh, 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 the, the central idea that is kind of, uh, I think he called it penny anti-Freud or something, <laughs> very dismissive about the whole, oh, what's the key to the guy's life, uh-huh. Rose, blah, blah, blah. But, um, Almost uh, as if it's a MacGuffin in his own. Yeah. And he has a line at one point where he says you can't describe a whole man's life with right. one word. And so. of course the film's hinged on it, but that's a great paradox of it. I think I think the other thing I remember really kind of guiding a lot of the debates about that film when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, first really falling in love with it and wanting to see it again and again, is it really divided all kinds of serious, you know, <laughs> serious teenage moviegoers in Racine, Wisconsin, anyway, uh, where I where I fell in love with it, uh, because for half the people I knew, Citizen Kane was and probably still remains simply a little too cold to the touch it, it, to to be uh, an object that they truly love mm-hmm. and revisit and revisit because it it is not it, it's the temperature of that film is cool. It's not trying to be loved and it's not trying to make you love the, you know, this forbidding central character. It's just not up. up it's not about that. And I, I think if you approach, the, if you tell people who have never seen Citizen Kane that this film is essentially, as Pauline Kael described it once, a newspaper comedy. <laughs> okay. They go in and sort of expecting, okay, it's kind mm-hmm. of this impudent, brash, kaleidoscopic, kind of oddly, oddly structured biography of a of a guy who's a little like William Randolph Hearst, but essentially it's kind of a dark comedy about ambition and a hollow man. And blah, blah, blah. I think you're going to get a very different, because I think people kind of bring a, a whole load of freight of, okay, prove it, not number one. Always right. on the, you're always number sure. one on the side yeah. ensemble. And it's just, the film doesn't really weigh all that. It, it, it has its own, it's in a different weight class. I, I, it makes me love it no less. And I mean, Wells to me is one of the three or four directors 
that um, mean everything to me. Hmm. When you say cool to the touch, I think that's because it has a cynicism that was certainly in the years, the immediate years after it came out, not of its time in how it portrays the American success, the American dream, dark side of that. And the country wasn't maybe ready for that, certainly in the years after World War II. But now it does seem to have a resonance and and maybe started to have one uh, since, what, the 60s, I think you said, Adam, is when it was number mm-hmm. one. And certainly through the 70s, I think that probably resonated and still does today where we see this picture of the beginning of the decline of America, if Cain does represent American success. And certainly that still seems to hold true today. Well, I'm guessing there are some people listening to us right now who remain unconvinced, who've seen it and maybe found it a little bit cold to the touch, think that maybe our choice and the fact that it's number two on the critics list in Sight and Sound magazine is a little bit boring, a little bit too predictable. If you are one of those people who don't think maybe Cain is still as relevant as it once was, Here's the writer-director of the movie Brick, The Brothers Bloom, and the upcoming Looper, Ryan Johnson, to tell you otherwise. Hey guys, this is Ryan Johnson calling in to uh, talk about my most essential film. Uh, So I think one kind of unfortunate side effect of canonizing a group of movies, especially when it's from a really really prestigious group that's doing it, is it can kind of tend to lend a layer of dust to some of them. And so I want to make a very personal and passion case for Citizen Kane actually being my most essential movie um, on that list and end and of all time, uh, especially maybe for some, if they're, if you got younger listeners who are mostly familiar with Kane from lists like that, uh, you know, Citizen Kane is an incredibly vital film. And it's, it's a movie that um, every time I'm sitting down to storyboard, a project, the first thing I do is I sit down and I rewatch Kane because visually the same way that Goodfellas is, in, is an essential text for editing, uh, Kane is an essential text for me at least um, for visual composition. And the things that Wells was doing with his frames, the way he created depth, the way he brought everything to life um, is done not only so well, but with so much uh, exuberance and panache, and he just goes out on limbs visually. But um, if you study the frames and study the way that he blocks his shots, it really is just um, uh, just a master class, and uh, and it's as vibrant as you can possibly imagine. And Wells was in his mid twenties when he made this movie. This is really it has the the leading part of a young man's movie. That's 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 why. Uh, Citizen Kane is still the top of the top of the heap for me. And I'm not saying anything new, but that's uh, that's it for me. Thank you so much, guys, and I look forward to talking soon. Our thanks to Ryan Johnson, a longtime friend of the show. I thought the most interesting thing Ryan had to say there was the fact that every time he approaches a new project, he sits down and watches Citizen Kane. He looks for inspiration every time he starts a new film from Citizen Kane. Certainly does speak to the fact that this movie is still very relevant for filmmakers today. Well, now that workers of the world have united for Kane, or at least film critics and filmmakers have united, let's move on to the rest of our list. And I think this has to be, Josh, I was telling you before we sat down, I think it's the biggest challenge we've ever faced on the show because every week with our top five lists, we come up with rules, we come up with restrictions, we find ways to limit down things that are already limited by the fact that they all fall into a certain genre or a theme or have some kind of connective tissue We try you way, can make those picks. We try to find ways to avoid exactly this. Exactly. Yeah. And here we have to choose from every film we've ever seen. This is thousands of movies for each of us. Obviously, it's very hard. And here's 
here's how Nick James, the Sight and Sound editor, presented the challenge to the different voters. He said, you might choose the 10 films you feel are most important to film history or the 10 that represent the aesthetic pinnacles of achievement or indeed the 10 films that have had the biggest impact on your own view of cinema. Michael, did you do any of those things or something different? All three of those and a little something, I mean, it's all subjective, God knows, but um, I like your word essential, Adam, because to me, greatest implies kind of uh, an uh, an Encyclopedia Britannica objectivity or... Um, I, I think if you just took this list and made it quote most influential films, then you're then you're almost in a weird way carving away your your deep personal connection to, to the picture. So it's really a little of everything, and in a lot of ways, I've, it, it, there's directors you really completely convinced need to be in there because of what they mean to you. And um, my impulses tend to go toward a great director's more modest work in some cases. Um, I mean, Wells, I, in a way, I wouldn't go that way because I suppose you could say Kane is, quote, the most influential and certainly there's one that got him launched and everything else. But, you know, there's films like Touch of Evil, which are completely disreputable and just the greatest B-movie ever made and, and everything but, that are really no less great. So yeah. uh, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, great is a tricky word. Favorite probably goes a little too far the other way. I like your word essential. Okay. Josh, are you in the same ballpark there? The challenge is how do you make this personal, right? And uh, the way I tried to do that is look at the films that are the most essential and then take away the ones that I respect or appreciate or admire and leave behind the ones that still thrill me about the potential of cinema. So no matter how old they are, no matter how many times I've seen them, when I watch them again, I finish it and immediately want to go find another movie to watch. Hmm. Sometimes there are films and one that didn't make my cut, which I greatly appreciate the rules of the game. I just didn't have that visceral response to it, but completely understand why it's on lists. I kept the ones that I did just jump off the couch or out of the theater and want to pursue cinema more after seeing them. Yeah, that jump off the couch moment, I'm calling it that transcendent moment. These have to be transcendent films. I think it goes without saying that the stories have to be compelling. It has to be more than just entertaining, though it also has to be entertaining. But you have to transcend, I think, conventional cinema in some way. These are filmmakers with their work offering something sublime, something mysterious, as we touched on, that you have to contend with, something that makes these films worth coming back to and allows you to wrestle with them every time you watch them. And to steal Werner Herzog's phrase, I was thinking about Herzog and my recent documentary films class, his notion of the ecstatic truth in documentaries. I think there has to be that ecstatic element in these films. One of the ways you get at that ecstatic element is, I think, by saying something really personal, and also distinct. And as I was formulating all this in my head last week, I was listening to some podcasts in the car. I was listening to KCRW's The Treatment with Elvis Mitchell, Mm. catching up on an old episode with Steven Soderbergh. And Elvis asked him a question about the kind of films he's trying to make now, what's driving his choices. And he said something that really summed up perfectly what I think I'm trying to get at. Well, that's the trick is can you build on these pillars in a way that's that's interesting and doesn't feel old or doesn't feel like a copy. I mean that's that's the goal is how do I how do I make this distinctive? How do I make it specific? How do I make it feel like nobody else would have done it exactly this way? That's that's you know, when you're growing up and you're first seeing films and starting to watch them for something other than entertainment, it's that thing that starts to emerge seeing, you know, Dr. Strangelove when you're 14 and feeling him 
behind every decision that's on screen, like really feeling it, feeling a singular intelligence behind what you're looking at makes a gigantic impression and you begin to notice there's a real difference between movies that have that and movies that don't. My thanks to Jenny Radelet and KCRW. You can, of course, check out the show at KCRW.com. But when he was talking about Kubrick and Dr. Strangelove, that really did speak to me in terms of what I was trying to get at with my selections for this list. So I think that personal connection, the fact that you're seeing filmmakers who are making choices that only they would make and their vision is really clearly coming through. I'm sure that probably is the case with all of our picks. And the way we did this, we organized our remaining picks after Citizen Kane by theme. We tried to come up with some way to group these together because we didn't rank them. Sight and Sound doesn't ask their participants to rank them, so we weren't going to make this any tougher on us than it already is. This first set here falls under the category of voyeurism, main characters who like to watch. And I thought this was fitting for this endeavor as we essentially do all become voyeurs when we go to the cinema. None of us went with Vertigo, the film that was number one, of course, on the critics' list overall. But Josh and Michael, you both selected another Hitchcock classic for your list. Go on, pick it up, Thorwald. Go on, you're curious. Go on, you wonder if it's your girlfriend calling the one you killed for. Go on, pick it up. That is Rear Window, and I think, Josh, it's appropriate that you start us off because this is a movie that you've consistently ranked not just in your top ten, but you've said this is your number one favorite film. Well, you have to have an answer for that question you do. because it comes so often. And so I was forced into a corner. I thought, what am I going to say? I can't say Citizen Kane, even though it could very well be that film. I got to come up with something a little less expected. And Rear Window felt good to me, really for the reason you touch on, Adam, that it has to do with this sense of voyeurism. Uh, Hitchcock's 1954 thriller is a movie about watching others. And it taps into that very voyeurism that drives the cinema. That's the appeal for me. This is leisurely paced and relatively static for a top movie of all time, I feel. Yet it's really as manipulative as any of Hitchcock films. At least I I feel that it is as I watch it over and over again. Suspicion, paranoia, fear, they're all as palpable here as in any of his films. I think Rear Window's greatness... uh, It lies in the way it echoes the dangerous appeal of the movies themselves to me. We're all peeping Toms when we go to the show. And I think that somewhere underneath Rear Window, the movie is sinisterly tweaking our subconscious guilt about that. And I I like that interplay going on. Of course, I was thinking about peeping Tom as we were on this subject of voyeurs. Unfortunately, no Powell and Pressburger making any of our lists, which is a shame. Uh, One of them made my 11 through 20. Okay, well, we will get to the 11 through 20 in our film spotting bonus content. Right around 11, 20, 11, 30, we'll probably get to (laughs) that. Exactly, as we finally get there. We're doing (laughs) bonus content on this? You didn't (laughs) warn me. We are Michael, Rear Window also your selection. So in that very tough question of your favorite Hitchcock, apparently this one won out uh, on this day. This anyway. is the thing that hacked me off the most about this damn assignment. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just a hit, uh, wrestling with which hit, you know, which which is actually greater. I mean, my, you know, Rear Window versus Vertigo versus Psycho versus, you know, the two others I love just as much, Sabotage from his British period, which not enough people know, and Shadow of a Doubt, which is fantastic. The Thornton Wilder script, basically our Tom with a murderer in it. Joseph Cotton's greatest it's performance. It's a great film. I that mean, might be his creepiest, actually. Yeah, no, I, I really, truly love that film. And I mean, I, I, part of me, Josh, just wants to say, yeah, I, I almost went with Rear Window. And then, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I guess what, what fascinates me here is that Rear Window and Psycho treat so many of the same themes in such a different way where at first glance you'd think well this can't even be the work of the same director because the just the tonality and the 
the mood and the and the crazy, crazy kind of hard, you know expressionistic extremes of the second one versus this kind of blithe romantic comic trappings of Rear Window. It's just I don't know. You know Hitchcock is the kind of director, is the director that so many of us fell in love with and really he's the one who introduced us to what movies can do to us hmm. and, and you look at the entire career later and especially when you look at how many movies that his didn't even get a damn nomination at the academy awards it's just it's just hilarious you know and then um you know rear window to me was also the first film that made me realize james stewart is a, is as good an actor that became a movie star as anyone ever saw come out of hollywood and i i hadn't really acquainted myself with stewart's uh, best work until I saw Rear Window and I, I, that scene where he's in a sweat watching Grace Kelly about to be nabbed across the way where he and there's no music there's no, it's just strictly Stuart in this horrible panic uh, really almost nonverbal um, I mean that's just it's great and that's what I go to Hitchcock for there are moments of anguish that cut right through whatever genre you're dealing with whatever kind of like you know, entertaining suspense happens to be going on or just kind of gut grinding, whatever, suspense. And it just gets to something very dark and painful and and then, sorry, you're out of it again. And, and that's 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 why he's such a master. Well, I certainly love your defenses over your window, the case you make for that film. I guess this is one where I probably fall into line with the majority of film critics, at least the ones who voted in the Sight and Sound poll, and thinking Vertigo is... The greater masterpiece. Rear Window seems to me the film that is his most perfect, maybe, and I do really love Rear Window, but Vertigo's the one that has that mystery, those answers that just don't seem to come, that draw you back to it again and again. So I guess I'd probably put Vertigo just slightly higher, Mm. but... I'm not going to argue against Rear Window. It's such a great film. And I'm going to see your Jimmy Stewart and raise you Kyle MacLachlan spying through the slits in the closet <laughs> door on the grotesque charade being performed by Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini in David Lynch's movie Blue Velvet. And this was a really tough choice for me because Mulholland Drive is another David Lynch favorite of mine and was a contender for my top 10. But in wrestling with those, I kept coming back to the Lynch film that was for me my entree into the art house. There are a lot of noir elements here. This is certainly a legitimate crime mystery where the main character, Jeffrey Beaumont, discovers a severed ear while walking through a vacant lot in what seems to be his idyllic hometown of Lumberton, and he just can't let well enough alone. He becomes a detective. He has to figure out whose ear it is and what the circumstances could be surrounding this act. And every time he unravels one part of the truth, something more terrifying emerges And speaking of terrifying, I think Dennis Hopper is maybe the scariest screen villain of all time in that movie. There's that scene I've talked about before at the end of the film where he's dressed up as the well-dressed man. He's got the mustache on. Something about when Kyle MacLachlan looks down the stairs and Dennis Hopper just looks up at him (laughs) with this face that just screams menace. That gets me every time. Literally does give me goosebumps. And as we talk about mystery, I mentioned that kind of running throughout my picks here. How do you explain a sequence like Dean Stockwell lip-syncing to Roy Orbison's In Dreams. You can't explain a sequence like that, at least not in practical terms, but in the abstract, it does fit perfectly, I think, within Lynch's world of corrupted innocence. Think about that great opening sequence to Blue Velvet with the children playing and the dogs barking and the fire trucks going by, but then, of course, we go underneath and we see that severed ear, we see the bugs crawling on it. I think that Lynch's distinction with all of his stylistic and thematic tropes that we've seen over and over again, is that he takes us underneath the surface. 
into the darkness of the human psyche. And even when he misfires, I'm always fascinated by what Lynch is doing, but here it's definitely the one that I keep coming back to the most. I close my eyes Then I drift away I think Blue Velvet brings up the question of historical context because when you think of 1986, Hollywood was arguably at the height of its factory production heyday in terms of what was just being churned out mm-hmm. for multiplexes. And then it comes Blue Velvet, something that's just astonishing in what it's trying to do and how it's trying to do it. So how much weight do we give? I don't know if you guys did give a lot of weight to the movie's influence at the time of its release. I, I can't say that I really I didn't did really all factor that, that in. No, but it does make me think what you're saying of the squid and the whale and Jeff Daniels going, short circuit or Blue Velvet? We're going to Blue Velvet. <laughs> that's it. I don't care if you're 14 or 10. We're going to, to Blue Velvet. That sums it up. I think Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive – Especially Mulholland Drive, it really, really are going to be films that that you will that I suspect will just sort of creep up the sight and sound pool decade by decade. It seems like Mulholland Drive, I think, is already rated ranked higher. No, yeah, it is. I think it came in somewhere around twenty eight or yeah, something on the list. It was it. one of the highest recent films yeah, on the list. No, I love it. I mean, we, you know, when Tony Scott and I were on at the movies and we did we did our best of the decade. I mean, I, Mulholland Drive was that for me. That scene you mentioned, Adam, in Blue Velvet with Dean Stockwell singing in Dreams. I mean, to me, that's one of the scenes that actually dies a little bit on its. Feet. I'm, hmm. not, I'm not sure that that has the same kind of. It didn't. It didn't keep me wrapped like so much of the rest of the film did. And for a lot of people, they had they hadn't seen that kind of fierce irony applied to right. a, 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 what seems to be a, a murder mystery, relatively straightforward. Lynch can barely tell that story straight. He does not care. It does not really matter. No, you know. I mean, and the expositional stuff in there is very horsey and kind of unconvincing and. It's not It's not why anybody goes to Blue Bell, but you're not going to really get the mystery solved. You're going because Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern are just uh, incomparably great together mm-hmm. as this young couple. And, and sort of the, 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 the comically extreme views of, of budding sexuality and this horribly corroded sexuality that you get with, with uh, Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini. I mean, that, that's where the movie's strength and just bizarre power comes from is just that, that basically. I'm going to wait here until she comes. Sandy. I'm going to honk four times. I'll go one, two, three, four, and then you'll hear it and you'll know she's on her way up. Okay. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. No, it's for me to know and you to find out. Sex, laughs, and murder. What's the greatest movies of all time list without them? Our countdown continues in a moment. Stay with us. Just my luck You'd walk into this party Just my luck You'd show up with my friends It's not the words that they reduce me to Or where your life is leading you It's the same reason that it always has been just my luck Just my luck I never said I loved you Just my luck It completely slipped my mind It's not my colder-hearted tendencies that keeps you from being 
What's your name? I said mine. Holly. Well, listen, Holly. You, uh, I don't know, want to take a walk with me? What for? Oh, I got some stuff to say. Guess I'm kind of lucky that way. Most people don't have anything on their minds, do they? Welcome back to Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. We'll return in a moment to our August 2012 countdown of the 10 greatest films of all time. The clip you just heard from Terrence Malick's Badlands, Martin Sheen, Sissy Spacek. That's a movie that did not make my top 10 list, nor Josh's, nor Michael Phillips, but it did make my 11 through 20, a film I obviously hold in very high regard. And when I asked filmmaker Jeff Nichols to choose his most essential film for this list, he was one of our special guests, it was his pick. Nichols is the director, of course, of this year's Mud and previously Take Shelter and Shotgun Stories. My interview with Nichols is part of the second half of our Greatest Films of All Time countdown, which you can hear at filmspotting.net or you can find the show in iTunes. Just look for episode 410. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. HAL 9000 from Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Not only did 2001 fail to make our greatest films of all time lists, none of us, myself, Josh, or Michael Phillips, had a single film by a director many would rate as one of the best of all time, Mr. Kubrick. Listener Sean McDonald from Long Island, New York, wrote in with great sympathy. I think the two of you, as well as Michael, did a great job on your list. Obviously, it's daunting trying to pick the 10 best films, whatever your criteria, because at the end of the task, you realize your list contains, for instance, not one Kubrick or Coen Brothers film, and there is an exclamation point there in Sean's email. I certainly felt that. I thought about Kubrick. I remember thinking, how could I not include the Coen Brothers on this list, as they are maybe my favorite filmmaking team. Sean's own list, which he sent along, included some eccentric picks like the critically divisive Darren Aronofsky film The Fountain and Albert Brooks' little scene 1979 film Real Life. A list like Sean's raises another issue with assembling a list like this, that desire to include those personal favorites, those overlooked favorites, at the risk of maybe overlooking some of those classics like 2001 that you also love. In any event, you just can't win, and that's part of the fun here of doing these lists here on Film Spotting. We hope you'll keep your own picks in mind as we return now to our August 2012 countdown of the 10 greatest films ever. Murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And when two people are involved, it's usually sooner. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and a somebody else. Pretty soon we'll know who that somebody else is. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometime, somewhere, they've got to meet. Their emotions are all kicked up. Whether it's love or hate doesn't matter. They can't keep away from each other. They may think it's twice as safe because there are two of them. <laughs> but it isn't twice as safe. It's ten times twice as dangerous. Murder may never be perfect, but we return to our list of the greatest films of all time with a set of selections that all involve a husband or wife looking to knock off their spouse. And I think they're both pretty close to perfect. Josh and Michael, you guys share a pick here. Mine, though, is Billy Wilder's classic Double Indemnity, which we just heard. Hard to pick one Billy Wilder film for this list, just as it was with Hitchcock and Rear Window. The Apartment, Some Like It Hot, those are the two that rank the highest on the critics' top 250. Sunset Boulevard, of course, belongs in the discussion. And my personal favorite of all those might actually be Ace in the Hole. I Mm -hmm. think that Kirk Douglas film is my second favorite Billy Wilder movie, but it does all come back for me to double indemnity. The hard-boiled dialogue alone is enough reason, I think, to put it on this list. And I thought it was 
funny listening to Terry Gross on Fresh Air recently. They were remembering David Rakoff, the humorist who just passed away from cancer, and he actually quoted the very memorable bit between Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray when they meet at her house for the first time from Double Indemnity, the whole bit about how fast was I going, officer, that exchange. He said he actually carried that around in his wallet. He just liked it that much. I don't know if he was exaggerating or not, but he would carry it around because he loved that scene so much. I think not only do you have that great dialogue, Barbara Stanwyck is arguably the most sinister, sensual, femme fatale ever. And I love the odd, interesting relationship, that friendship between Fred McMurray and Edward G. Robinson in the film. What I think for me elevates this movie above just being a great noir film, what makes it a Billy Wilder movie is my reading of Walter Neff as far less of a dope than he seems to be. I think the mystery here isn't, of course, who the killer is. We know that right from the beginning of the film. It's why. And I think the key scene in the movie is when... Walter Neff is talking to Phyllis, to Barbara Stanwyck, and says there's not going to be any slip-up, nothing sloppy, nothing weak. It's got to be perfect. Stanwyck may be the catalyst for this, but this is a guy who has the ambition of an artist. He's trying to pull off something impossible, and if he's going to do it, he's going to try to do it perfectly. He's going to try to do something a normal person couldn't do. He's going to outsmart the system. And Wilder plays with that throughout the entire film with this whole notion of the little man and the big man comes up again and again. And there's a great bit where Edward G. Robinson says to him finally that I picked you for the job not because I think you're so damn smart, but because I thought you were a shade less dumb than the rest of the outfit. Guess I was wrong. You're not smarter, Walter. You're just a little bit taller. Neff <laughs> wants to be a big man. He wants to be this almost Nietzschean Superman-like character, I think. And that ambition however misguided it is and it's what drives him to his ultimate downfall it's also what drives a lot of Wilder's heroes to their downfall and what makes them so fun to come back to again and again yeah you know I haven't seen this movie in a few years Adam and, and you've gotten me curious to I mean I love I, I loved it uh, it it uh, I always kind of gave the edge in that era to the big sleep because it's the most uh, berserkly abstract in terms of plotting mm-hmm. I mean nobody can follow that plot and and, Not even Howard Hawks. No, that's right. No, I mean, famously, there's a body that is never accounted for <laughs> nope. in terms of who. You know, <laughs> um, but but the, the repartee that you hear in that in that in the in the best of Double Indemnity um, is certainly picked up by by uh, Bogart and Bacall and uh, The Big Sleep. And that at the time, it was really seen by some as as, as kind of a, a morally corrupting influence mm-hmm. on American movies, mm-hmm. um, worse than anything since the pre-code era. And and thank God for both movies. <laughs> yeah. I think The Apartment probably would have been my Wilder, actually. Mm-hmm. I do like how you're killing two birds with one stone here, getting Wilder and film noir. That's nice work. Thank you. Well, let's go to a completely different genre here, but still in keeping with our larger theme of spouses and murder, or in this case, attempted murder. You guys both picked what I think is probably the best silent film ever, and that's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans from F.W. Murnau. Josh? Yeah, even though it's a silent film and you think of it as belonging to that era, I see it really as a transition point in that it's so artistic in new ways for the time and ways that we're still seeing being used in movies that it kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, okay, here's here's a simple fable, a common story of love and another woman and attempted murder, but we're going to show you how it can be done with the movies. So there's the freeness of the camera that's new that F.W. Marneau brings. There's the use of superimposed imagery that is so haunting. There's one point where George O'Brien's character has the other woman kind of float behind him as he's thinking of her. And so all of these little touches are the movies themselves in this particular film saying 
pay attention to us, we're going to go places. And it's just so exciting to see that. I remember getting to see this film on the big screen. I think we talked at one point, Adam, as we were preparing for the show about how are we going to be affected by these older films we've had a chance to see in restored versions in a theater compared to things we've had to catch up with on video. This was one that I saw on a big screen, and it was really one of those unforgettable experiences. It was unforgettable for me just watching it on DVD at home for the first time, but certainly I can imagine how great it would have been to see it on the big screen. Michael, why do you love Sunrise? I love this film. And you can talk about this is worth like one minute of context. William Fox gives uh, Murnau a carte blanche and an open checkbook to make a movie that really announces Fox's intentions as a serious film, uh, you know, a backer of of important films, and he comes up with Sunrise, and it's it's not an audience friendly picture uh, for the time, and when when you look at the first Academy Awards that were actually presented in 1929, they still had Best Picture divided into two categories. Uh, I think one was called I'm going to get the wording a little off, but Outstanding. Motion picture, and that was went to William Wellman's Wings, which is a very entertaining, you know, World War One flyboy romance. Uh, great fun today, and for quote unique and artistic achievement, I think was the wording. You know, Murnau's Sunrise, which is inarguably the greater film, and Adam it might be the the silent era's peak achievement. Although I have one other that I like even slightly more, but the idea of murdering one's spouse was in the air then. It was like it's just sort of a weird byproduct of this jazz age kind of hysteric, you know, mood. Where, you know, dancing on the edge of a precipice all the time. Dreiser's American Tragedy. You had you had movies like Sunrise, kind of using elements of that in that you have somebody in a rowboat and will will he give in to his demons and and then that film t- takes the nuttiest turn in that it comes back from the brink of near tragedy and becomes this kind of redemptive story of how these two could actually find a way to fall in love again and it's largely just because Josh, as you say, you experience their immersion in the big city, this sort of archetypal, symbolic big city, uh, in the most glorious cinematic way. It's just it's it's as much of a toy box of cinema as Citizen Kane was a few you know uh, Mm -hmm. fifteen years later. Hmm. And uh, you know, Sunrise will never be for everybody, but. And I've never seen it projected properly on the big screen, so I'm, I'm still waiting for that day. <laughs> well, so far with our list here of the greatest films ever, we've covered Citizen Kane, we've covered a couple of great films involving voyeurs, and now a couple of great films covering murderers or attempted murderers. Our next set of films here involves great screen comedians and perfectly following the great silent film Sunrise. We're going to go to two of our all-time great silent comedians, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Josh, you actually went with the Chaplin film, Modern Times. Yeah, I know Chaplin isn't regarded when it comes down to these lists and you're forced to choose one or the other, which I don't know why you have to, but I rarely see a list that has both of them. I know that Keaton is generally preferred, but I have to go with Modern Times and Chaplin. There's just so much ingenuity and audaciousness and really pure hilarity in this film that that sticks with me. It's essentially about the curse of labor, but he also gets into the societal and technological forces that allow labor to govern our lives then, 
But I'm picking up on, as I'm talking here, a lot of the movies that resonate with me are the ones where I still see the things they're about applying today. And I think this film certainly applies today. But when we meet Chaplin's little tramp for the first time, he's this factory worker who's bent over this assembly line that's going at such a furious pace. No one else can keep up with it but him. Of course, this almost kills him. He gets fired and then he ends up in jail. And it's kind of following his story. And this is all taking place amid the tumult of America after the Great Depression. There's a touch in there that always stands out to me, and it's the feeding machine. I don't know if you remember this, but it's where factory workers will be fed by a machine during lunchtime so that Mm -hmm. they can continue to work. And it just makes me wonder what Chaplin would say today when so many of us hardly bother to stop to eat lunch at all when we're at work. We just plow right through lunchtime. So really, really a very funny movie, very inventive movie that speaks volumes today. The, the Tribune has a feeding machine. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you did go with a Buster Keaton film instead of Chaplin Michael Phillips, and that pick is Sherlock Jr. Yeah, I adore Keaton, and I think he's, you know, his style of comedy, it's it's like it, it's like it was invented tomorrow, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. It's just that particular kind of stoic poetry that he's so wonderful at and I, I just love Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Jr. is not feature length uh, even by you know it's it's a it's I think a 40 minute film I, I should know mm-hmm. about 45 okay and you know I tried for many reasons to kind of come up with something else that would sort of fill it out or fit the mold more but I don't know I I, I adore it I, I just uh, there's too many people now under the age of 30 who are casually or even more so interested in film that don't know it. So I, all I can say is go see it and see what you think. I, it breaks my heart not to have a Marx, an early Paramount Marx Brothers film on this list in terms of a straight up, you know, comic showcase for a comedian or a comic, comedy team. Um, and I mean, Chaplin's City Lights for me is probably a greater achievement than modern times. That's that I missed it by a whisker too. I think the hmm. last minute of City Lights is the most. You, know, you talk about bald emotional manipulation that just nails me every time. <laughs> but uh, Sherlock Jr. is just purely distilled Keaton genius uh, uh, and slapstick of the highest order ever, ever. Yeah. To round out our legendary comedian triumvirate, we'll go with someone who's not silent. In fact, he rarely stops talking, and that's Woody Allen. What, what, what's your name? Allison. You're like New York Jewish left-wing liberal intellectual, Central Park West, Brandeis University with the socialist summer camps and the the father with the Ben Sean drawings, right? And the really, you know, strike-oriented kind of... I'm stopping me before I make a complete imbecile of myself. No, that was wonderful. I love being reduced to a cultural stereotype. Woody there as Alvy Singer in the great Best Picture winner, Annie Hall, reducing poor Carol Kane to a cultural stereotype. Probably my favorite comedic exchange in that movie and it's filled with some amazing comedic exchanges but this is a guy Woody Allen who I felt had to be represented on my list I'm such a fan I did strongly consider Crimes and Misdemeanors and Manhattan as well I think those are his other two masterpieces but for me it comes down to this film simply being the movie that makes me laugh more than any other film and it's certainly easy to make the case for this being a distinctive Woody Allen picture All of his central preoccupations are on display, sex, death, cinema, and the mystery here that we've touched on a little bit throughout our list, this mystery of love. You've got two people in Alvy and Annie Hall who seem so good for each other, but nevertheless famously end up with a dead shark. And that mystery is so hard to to articulate that the only way Woody can do it is to come up with that metaphor. And I think that 
this is another film that explores that theme in really interesting technical ways, many of which have become staples of romantic comedies. But you've got direct address, you've got split screen, breaking the fourth wall, flashbacks. I think it's a very funny comedy, but what Woody's doing technically is using the full cinematic capability to get at something a little bit deeper. So Annie Hall is my pick. I'm not the biggest Woody Allen fan, but there's no arguing against Annie Hall. Okay. Well, I appreciate that because at some point I'm going to strap you down Clockwork Orange style and make you watch more Woody Allen films. I know this is coming. We go from one of the best screen romantic comedies, for me the best screen romantic comedy, Annie Hall, to three romantic dramas, all of which conveniently happen to be French. As you heard there with that number, Josh, you've picked our first but not last musical. And it isn't a Hollywood musical, which I worried about. I wanted a Hollywood musical on this list. I think we are going to get one later, so I, I feel good about that. But I did go with The Umbrellas of Cherbourg from 1964. With this film, French director Jacques Demy tries to out-musical the Hollywood musical in a lot of ways, and he pulls it off. So the colors here are brighter. The stars, Catherine Deneuve and Nino Castelnuovo, are more gorgeous. There's even more music. Every line of dialogue here is sung. Yet I think what I ultimately appreciate more about Umbrellas is that within this candy-coated fantasy, there's room for the heartache of the real world, and we don't always get that in musicals, particularly Hollywood ones. Deneuve and Castelnuovo are young lovers, and their initial bliss is interrupted by the Algerian War, which separates them for about two years, I think it is. And their separation is probably the definitive train station farewell in the cinema. They do reunite. But even so, the movie maintains a bittersweet note. So like I said, unlike most Hollywood musical romances, this is a story of it's really about naive young love, but as seen through the affectionate eyes of experience. Well, Michael, for your French romantic drama, you went with the film not quite as bittersweet as The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It is a Jean Vigo film. So 1934, La an absolutely unique screen romance from a director who died so young and I I guess this film I I don't want to it's not about what happens in the story it's much more about this mood and kind of a fatalistic mood of young love and just what life is like on the on the barges and the rivers of France and um, I guess picking this film in a way, stands in for uh, Godard's Breathless, back, uh, which which I wrestled with, because it's got the same kind of impudence and um, devil-may-care approach to telling a straightforward story, um, whereas Godard was kind of dealing with, consciously dealing with, really riffing on American crime genres and films he loved. Vigo's lot a lot, I think, is is coming from more mysterious locations, but you know, more hmm. more inside his own heart. And 
it's just got a an atmosphere and a flavor unlike any film I've seen. I mean, the only one really to compare to it is Vigo's own Zero for Conduct, another fantastic film that isn't quite feature length. But uh, those, if you don't know those films, Zero for Conduct and La La Land, I just urge anybody to see them. Well, here's my quick confession and apology, and that's all it is. It's you certainly, hate the French. You hate the French. It's certainly not a challenge to your pick, Michael. As you'll see, I have nothing to articulate against or for La La Land. It happens to be the one film among all of our lists that I have never made it all the way through. I've tried at two different points in my life over wow. the past five years to watch this film, and every time I get about halfway through it, and it never grabs me. Hmm. The story has yet to grab me, and I'm not seeing the kind of innovation technically that I really felt like maybe it would have to understand why it's put on such a pedestal. It just it didn't grab me. What am I what am well, I overlooking? What are you missing? Uh, you shallow man. Yes. I mean, but beyond uh, that, you know, uh, and I, I think I will say that it's a film that hasn't lived at the forefront of my movie loving consciousness for decades. It's a film that kind of snuck up on me when I was kind of forced forced by you guys forced <laughs> to compile this this cockamamie thing. And I guess I just think wh- when it happened and the way it came out and the fact that it doesn't really really it just sort of exists out of time. I find it I find it just pure magic and hmm. it's it's, it's but it's 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 evanescent, you know. It's like it's like a cloud. It doesn't you can't pin it down in terms of story. It's not really going for the heartstrings at all. It's, it's, yeah. it's much more just about capturing a mood. And um, I think he's very, for a young director, he's very clear-eyed about what um, young love really can be like. Well, it's one I vow I will complete at some point. Someday. I feel like I can't be a quote-unquote actual cinephile unless I make it through a lot, a lot. So that will happen at some point down hey, the I road. Don't lo- I don't love the searchers, man. Yeah, okay? that's true. And <laughs> you should be embarrassed about that, frankly, Fine. Michael. So Fine. there you go. My pick here to close out our trio of films that are all French romantic dramas happens to be the last film I added to my list, though it doesn't necessarily mean it's number 10 or in last place, as it might be. It is, though, Francois Truffaut's Jules Ygem. It's based on a novel by Henri Pierre Roche, but Truffaut certainly makes this all his own and makes it cinematic. I touch on some of the things Woody Allen does in Annie Hall. Everything here but the kitchen sink is on display in Jules and Jim. Newsreel footage, photo stills, freeze frames, panning shots, wipes, dolly shots. There's a helicopter shot. Of course, the bicycle sequence really stands out. And even voiceover narration is used in Jules and Jim. And I just find, though, beyond all of the technical matter that's going on in this film, it is ultimately a story about friendship. And the heart that comes through in this movie is what stands out with Jules and Jim. I, of course, failed to mention the the great dolly slash zoom in shot that Hitchcock made famous in Vertigo, that Spielberg makes famous in Jaws. We also see that here in Jules and Jim. Jean Moreau, though, as the love interest is Catherine. She's a walking mystery. She is a contradiction. In some ways, I think you can make the case she's one of the first manic pixie dream girls. She's someone who is totally objectified by the two men. She's kind of given no backstory, and she ends up being the downfall, though, of both men. But she also behaves like a man and is a very strong-willed character. At one point, she even dresses up like a man, putting on a mustache. And when she takes issue with the way they talk about women, she protests. And we get that amazing sequence where she actually dives into the River Seine. Ultimately, though, Jules and Jim, for me, is just 
a film that makes me smile every time I think about it. Just thinking about those two characters sitting in the cafes, talking about art and big ideas and their aspirations, the bicycle sequence where they're, they're riding along and just enjoying life. I think when you look at the film as a whole, the French, Michael, have a phrase for this type of exaltation of spirit. You're much better with French than I am. Do you know where I'm going with the way they articulate that type of happiness and spirit? Uh, creme brulee. Creme brulee or <laughs> joie de vivre. <laughs> the joie de vivre, I think. I feel that way about creme brulee it's, it's, often. I will That's say, what comes through with this movie the, for me. It's the warmest wave uh, in in the great French New Wave. Uh, that's, that's what Truffaut brought to that movement. And it you get a warmth off this film that you know Godard had no interest in. Um, no, and and most of the other most of the other directors, uh, they're just working in a different temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another one I haven't seen for o- over a decade now. I'm, I'm really Josh. Is it, is it a film that means anything to you particularly? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the warmth is key because, in a way, this is another one of these kitchen sink films where everything's thrown in there, like Kane is. Yet that not alone is why it persists. Right. We're looking back at it not just to see how these techniques were used, but that there was that emotional resonance as well. Those are the ones that last. Elle avait des bagues à chaque doigt, des tas de bracelets autour des poignets, et puis elle chantait avec une voix qui cite au mangeola. Elle avait des yeux, des yeux d'opale qui fascinaient, qui fascinaient. That's just part one of our August 2012 show devoted to our top 10 greatest films of all time. To get part two, you can visit filmspotting.net or find the show in iTunes as episode number 410. We welcome your feedback. It's an old list, but we love to get those emails. What did we forget? What should we have absolutely included? What are your favorite films of all time? You can send those pics or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and over at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out in wide release this weekend, Monsters University. This is Pixar's sequel to 2001's Monsters, Inc. And World War Z, Brad Pitt starring in this film from director Mark Forster, who made Monsters Ball, Stranger Than Fiction, and Quantum of Solace. In limited release here in Chicago, The Bling Ring is opening. This is the new film from director Sofia Coppola about fame-obsessed teens who rob celebrity houses. Emma Watson, Hermione herself, stars in the bling ring. Also, Much Ado About Nothing. This is Joss Whedon's low-budget black-and-white staging of the play by Shakespeare with various Whedon players, some of his normal faces that you'll see throughout his TV shows and movie work appearing in that ensemble. Next week here on the show, Josh will be back with me. We'll be in our normal format. We're going to discuss Man of Steel that recently opened the new Superman reboot. We also hope to spend a few minutes on Much Ado About Nothing. And tying in with Man of Steel, we're going to share our top five movie Christ figures. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show definitely wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candice Griffiths and special thanks to Tori Malatia and Shauna Coyne at WBEZ Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our featured music this week was from Dawes. More information at DawesTheBand.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.